Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mm-hmm. How are you? Oh, just trying to live life. <laughs> you were up late. It took three and a half hours to get the uh, tickets to press screenings that I need for my first 48 hours at the Venice Film Festival uh, because their new system was uh, not working whatsoever. You're leaving on mon- tomorrow. Tomorrow. Uh, so probably next week's podcast will be over Zoom, I'm assuming. Yeah. I don't want to do it alone again. <laughs> I feel like a crazy person talking to myself, which I do a lot anyway, but... But I don't want to record but it. But to have it recorded is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this morning we watched... TMZ did a special on Richard Simmons. First of all, that journalistic... Uh, well, TMZ. Well, TMZ is a huge uh, platform, and they do get a lot of... I mean, I've learned a lot of shit, like breaking news from TMZ. Sure. And then it takes like four hours for, let's say, MSNBC to get it. But, boy, they did like an expose on Richard Simmons that was so drawn out and laborious. Like, there isn't much to this person. He... Is because they focus on like how after 2014 he's been missing from the spotlight. Mm-hmm. So they spend maybe like 10 minutes explaining who he is, fine. And then they keep alluding to this disappearance and what it could be, and we know what it is, and we're going to tell you at the end. And all it is is he was getting older, his knees are bad, and he doesn't want to be seen as not the vibrant person we all know and many loved. So it's a very simple answer to a question that I don't know that a lot of people are posing. <laughs> no, and, and just could somebody edit together a version of that that just gives succinct bits of information that's not completely replaying everything? Oh my, oh gosh. my gosh, every yeah, every segment because there were commercials. It, it's just like repeating the same sound bites and the same visuals. And before the commercial plays, they they would play clips from upcoming footage from some. Well, you know, journalists saying something that's, you know, pithy or or, or uh, sensational kind of. And it's like, oh. But so obviously Richard Simmons was huge in the 80s and the 90s because I remember the deal a meal and the sweating with the oldies. Your mom had the sweating. Uh, we would listen to sweating to the oldies uh, or I'd listen to my mother working out to that. But uh, it probably helped me develop a great affinity for a catalog of songs from that period. Uh, oh, sure. Like Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I remember he sold those plates that were designed to be smaller so the portions looked bigger. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's a very popular personality who, of course, was, you know, it was kind of uncomfortable because he's obviously gay or you know, back then, just like very flamboyant and effeminate, and it's kind of he's one of those people, that, much like Vincent Price, who somebody usually my dad in the room would be like, "God, he, isn't he gay?" Would <laughs> uh, would uh, send me scrambling to my room because I didn't want to have to be confronted with being anything like that. Of course, I used to work in a salon on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, and so the Hollywood tours and the TMZ tour vans with all the people who pay with the open air top, you know, drive by. And Richard Simmons would often be like, our the, the salon had a huge window that faced Sunset Boulevard, and there would be he Richard Simmons would be like out in front of the salon waiting for this tour truck. 
to come by and he would greet the people. Um, and once I recall him coming into the salon to use the restroom, but a very vibrant public persona. Yes. And uh, of course what he stands for and what, you know, he's preaching basically, uh, is all, all sounds good, but there's, there's always been a factor that made me kind of, you know, uncomfortable watching him interact with people in a way that I feel that same discomfort for Jonathan Van Ness. Sure. Well, in, in, in the sense that they both feel like clowns to me. Well, that it's just, it's again, I have no problem with, uh, anyone being flamboyant it's just the level i don't know that you can realistically be authentic with that many people so it, to me there's a large part of that that is an act uh and and we're not equipped to have to deal with people at, at that level sure sure yeah it it's interesting i feel more for richard simmons than i do like a jonathan van ness because, Same, of, because yeah. if we think about all that man who was born in the late 40s 48, yeah. Had to deal with, and he talks in, in this TMZ special, which I don't recommend watching, but we do get sound bites of him talking about being bullied and like in, in like junior high or high school, sitting in the bathroom stall and kids like shooting lighter fluid under the stall and setting it afire to try to burn him. And mm -hmm. so looking at him, he seems sad. And there are a lot of clips of him just talking and seeming very sad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the special is so repetitive because we just keep getting clips of him saying he's lonely, he's a loner, he's a recluse. Like, we get it. Like, Which also speaks to... So he's giving all these people this joy, but it's a one-way street test. Like, <laughs> The other thing is we've... Like, celebrities, like, that's their job. So just like any, like the rest of us, at a point we retire from our jobs and we don't want to hear about that shit. You know, mm -hmm. the day you retire from your work, the day I retire from my work, I don't want to talk about that shit anymore. Mm -hmm. I want nothing to do with that job, those people, anything related to it. So I feel like celebrities have the same, should enjoy the same luxury of like, he decided to get out of the spotlight because his health was failing and he didn't want to be seen that way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he's in his 70s. Like that man doesn't want to... <laughs> Talk, talk about sweating to the oldies anymore. I think that's very reasonable. Yeah, but moving course. on, did you read about Harry Styles and like people, there are all these memes about him and the comments he made about like gays and film and... Uh, I saw, I read something brie briefly about him. He doesn't interest me all that much, but... Well, here. So he was interviewed and was asked about, you know, him being accused of queer baiting. I've read about that, yeah. And then he made a comment, and I'm just paraphrasing some of the quotes, but in relation... He's in a new movie where he's playing a gay person. What's that? You read the book. My What's, Policeman. My Policeman. He says, it's not like this is a gay story about these gay guys being gay. Um, it's a very human story. It's about love and about wasted time to me. And people feel like that's kind of dismissive. Because then he goes on to say... Um, there's a line that people are really picking up... Oh, when asked about like the sexual content, he says so much of gay sex in film is two guys going at it and it kind of removes the tenderness from it. Um, and then people are responding to that saying like, first of all, where is all this like mainstream content of gay guys going at it? Like, like what is Harry Styles watching? Like gay porn? Like what is his reference point that he thinks there's so much content out there in the mainstream media of gay guys just going at it? When I, 
I think many people are arguing, and I would agree, most of the gay content we see that does include sex and love, it's very um, sanitized. Yes. And unrealistic. Much, and, and, but so is straight sex that we sure. see. Like, anytime you see women leaving a bra, and I understand, I don't feel like the actress, the actress should have to get naked uh, if she doesn't want to, but that's really not how sex looks. You know, like, it, we, we still are very, even for the heteros, locked in this puritanical sense of what sexuality should look like. Right. But I don't know. Um, I I don't have feelings about Harry Styles or like him playing this character. I didn't read the book. I don't know. I don't know why. I, I think his initial comment made sense to me that, yeah, I am a guy who identifies as straight, but I read this script. Maybe he read the book and he didn't see it as a gay story. He saw it as a story about wasted time and about love. To me, that makes sense. I think the extra comment about gay sex being just two guys going at it is like, well, I, you know, I mean, I think most people think of sex that way, whether it's between two men, two women, mm -hmm. a man and well, a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a problem with uh, making erotic scenes feel erotic in most films. Uh, right, because the way people have sex actually versus what we see on TV and film are very different. Right, and you know... So, I don't know what he's talking about. No, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to unpack about that, but also uh, the the queer baitiness, because I, I read that, because he didn't, I don't know if he necessarily defines himself as straight, because he has a problem with labels, uh, which I agree with that sentiment, but uh, I think he was accused of somebody saying, you never have dated a man in public. Uh because he's with Olivia Wilde, who, you know, Jason Sudeikis' ex, who had uh, just directed him in another movie about to come out called Don't Worry Darling, which I'll see in Venice. You know, there's a lot of weird stories going on about that because Florence Pugh, you know, is the young woman from uh, Midsummer. Mm -hmm. She's the star of that, the other Harry Styles movie, who's put out a statement that she's severely limiting the amount of press that she's willing to do uh, and apparently there's been all kinds of rumblings uh, she didn't like Olivia Wilde's behavior on set uh, oh. the, like the, I don't think the two of them got along very well uh, you know as production had started uh, Shia LaBeouf had been replaced for aggressive behavior on set uh, there was all that fallout so I don't I don't know there's, there's a, a Harry Styles I think you know by the time these two films come out will have a lot of uh, things going on. I am I am interested in watching it. I liked the novel uh, My Policeman and I'm, I, I, yeah I, I don't again I've said this before I don't need to know somebody's uh, private life in their bedroom to determine whether or not I think that's the appropriate factor for them playing a character. Uh, yeah I mean I don't know yeah well we can go on and on about that but we really don't know people's like no. behavior so it's like we force labels on people and then we use that to make a lot of assumptions but it's like we really don't know what harry styles is doing in the privacy of his own whatever so to say that he shouldn't be or, or even the fact that he's queer baiting is like how do we know he's not queer well just because so i need you to sign on the dotted line that you define as this to me that's that's fucking fascism like i i don't we do need to get away from binaries. Well, and where's the line? Like, so then can a person who's not a doctor play a doctor? Can a person who's not an actual, like, mother play a mother? Well, like, I just don't know. Like, okay, so the first trailer, I think, dropped for Evan Peters playing Jeffrey Dahmer uh, in, in the Ryan 
Oh, didn't he already play? Oh, no. That, oh, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I think then that'll be on Netflix. No, who played Dahmer in that movie with Anne Heche? I don't know. I don't remember that kid's name. I like that movie. Yeah, that That's was a good My movie. Friend Dahmer. Uh, but is there going to be a big hubbub about Evan Peters not being gay and then uh, also not a serial killer? <laughs> right. I do think there are lines, like, because it's about respect and about of course. Like, integrity. And, yeah, like, someone put, you know... I haven't seen this movie, but I still think about Zoe Saldana uh, being Nina Simone, mm-hmm. something like that. It's like, okay, I don't know why we need to do it like that. Yes. But, and, and then of course, like in the golden era of Hollywood and like white characters playing indigenous people and Asian people, like, yes, by today's standards, I would say like that is ridiculous. And you know, it that goes back into that star theory, right? And reception theory about how there aren't any, there aren't any notable people that we need to generate the money we need for this film. Uh, just like, you know, going back to Scarlett Johansson playing a trans character. And it's like, we, you know... If that's going to be the argument, let these cis people play trans characters, but at the same time, somebody needs to be fostering uh, trans actors then, so that we don't have to have that argument anymore, that sure. we can't have, we, this, this nobody is headlining this big budget movie. Well, let's foster these careers and, yeah. and, and allow people opportunities, but that only happens, that only happens when we, we kind of have to have, we do have to have these arguments and these conversations and this level of rigidity at times, but it can't be across the board. Everything has to be context. Yeah. Moving on, uh, season two of Celebrity Drag Race. <laughs> All I'll say is this week's uh, celebrity who went home was Tom Felicia, who is from the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. He was the interior design person, which was fun because on this episode, Carson Cressley was a judge. Who was also on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy with Tom Felicia. So there's that. I thought he he was very fun in As drag. Jackie Wood. His drag name was Jackie Wood. Uh, I, I thought he looked great in drag and he had a great attitude. He couldn't dance. So no. ultimately that's what got his ass packing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the winners were two contestants who I still can't recognize their celebrity, like their actual self. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that was a fun little episode. But really what I wanted to talk about was Drag Race Philippines because we watched um, episode three. So even if you're like, I'm not watching Drag Race Philippines, but you watch, you know, US, I would recommend at least watching episode three of Drag Race Philippines. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Those queens can sing and dance. Yes, they can. And the songs they did, because this episode they had to do like a, you know, one of those Rue songs. Where they all write their own lyrics. Where they, they all write they have, their own lyrics. They have girl bands facing off. Were so good. Yeah, kind of, you know, as, as I think as catchy as Bing Bang Bong from... Yeah, the and, and, and but I mean, like, even the weakest queen was very strong. Mm-hmm. And the one who won, <laughs> Turing, who's a plus size, that bitch gets down. Yeah. I mean, I could see her right next to, like, a Lizzo and wearing her out. Like, mm-hmm. she... Because she's a person of size... And she dances so well and she can sing. It was, I mean, I would go see her in concert for sure. So that was a lot of fun. Then their runway theme was like creature, like like horror creature. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all their different interpretations. Yes. Yeah. And um, my understanding is in the Philippines, like with horror, like vampires are a huge. A swang. 
So there, there was a lot of that. There was like a big baby that looked really creepy. One of them had like a baby on stage, and then it was like triplets. A, she had triplets, triplets, but one of them was like mechanical and moved. But then she, we, there's an emotional moment where that story is telling about her relationship with her mother. And she was inspired. <laughs> so the episode's long. It's like an hour and a half because like. Of the remaining queens, like five of them give these very long, heartfelt talks. Yes. Which can be tedious, but it, it, it was moving. And I I think if you don't plan on watching Drag Race Philippines, I would recommend this episode at least. Anyway, moving on to a question. Someone asked, why do we not like children in film? Do we just hate children or what's up with that? What's up with that? Uh, How I would you answer that? First of all, I would say I don't hate children. I don't hate children. I think the way I feel about children is how I feel about dogs. Oh, in that God. it's it's not the the child of the dog I don't like. It's the parent or the owner. And how they let the their child or dog behave. Right. Or how they act about their child or dog. So so that's my general thought about children in the wild. But in film, I think probably the reason I ha- I have an aversion to children in film is because Acting is hard. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I can't imagine, you know, like it, it seems very difficult to me. And we see a lot of adults who can't act. Mm-hmm. So then you get these children in film and if they're not well directed, it's just cringy. And I think you agree. There is nothing worse than like a precocious kid on screen. I think it's, the problem for me is usually precocious children. I, I can forgive like a, a new some a new actor, uh, an unprofessional who's giving a performance and seeing that there's some roughness around the edges, but there's maybe an authenticity to it, which I, I'll gravitate towards. But yeah, that that mannered precociousness. Oh no, children don't sound like they're like intelligent forty year old drag queens. You know, I think maybe that's what it is. Is people writing roles like for, yes. for children and it's like but you don't have the voice like it's just hard to write for a character you don't know right like i wouldn't write for like a 60 year old korean lady because i don't know that experience so then it's the same thing like these screenwriters writing for children and they always come across like too old and mature and snarky yes and then and it's just uncomfortable and sometimes i think you know and then we the problem with awarding children uh you know like for the kids that have won Academy Awards like uh, Anna Paquin or Tatum O'Neill uh, kind of ruinous to them eventually later on but uh, I think some of the best child performances you really what a good director is doing is kind of like tricking the kid I always think of the film The Fall by Tarsim which has this really you watch it and you describe it as like this really great child performance but that child is not actually performing she's reacting to the environment placed in front of her and right. the, the, the stimulus that she's given for whatever scene they needed to make uh, and that's what's so good about it because she's actually just being a child. And there are plenty of films where I recall thinking, oh, this kid is like, this character played by this child is working very well. Yes. I can't think of any, but yes, th- I, I don't like in like automatically dislike children in film. But the, if you think of like, uh, remember, I don't know if you remember how wowed everybody was by, you know, the young Dakota Fanning in what was that would have been the early 2000s. Uh, and then kind of all of a sudden people being uncomfortable with like, oh, she just she's acting like a like an adult, even yeah. off of off of camera and in interviews. And there's something kind of, you know, uh, Jean Benet ish about that. Well, even <laughs> I, you know, so Millie Bobby Brown is kind of a big part of my life because I have a Google search set up for my own name. Oh, God. And I get notifications every day because I think I've mentioned this before because Millie Bobby Brown, her current boyfriend or ex-boyfriend is, we have the same name. 
And he, in addition to being in a relationship with a famous person, is like a hockey player, I believe. So every day I get notifications about my name, and it's always related to Millie Bobby Brown. But anyway, Millie Bobby Brown did an episode of Hot Ones, and it was so uncomfortable to me because she's, she's trying to be like very mature, and she's wearing this outfit that doesn't make sense for the show she's doing, mm-hmm. and her makeup is terrible, and her weave looks crazy. And it's just awkward, like, watching this teenager. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure I was ten times more awkward at that age than she was on that show. So it just recalls a lot of cringiness. Sure. And I think when I watch kids, it's also kind of cringy. But again, uh, a recent example was that movie Samaritan with Sylvester Stallone. I thought the kid in that, who's supposed to be like a 13-year-old, I thought he did a great job and the writing felt very authentic. And then we just watched something with a little black girl in it. That now is escaping me. Oh, shoot. I wish I could remember. But I recall thinking, like, that little actor did a great job. You, I, you liked the actress from Dr. Sleep, I remember. That was a while ago now. Oh, yeah. That was a while ago. No, this was recent. But anyway, moving on. So, there's nothing in the sorry to this man section. Although I know there are mistakes. Uh, well, it, I'm kicking myself because during while we were filming Out of the Blue and it dawned on me that Ray Nicholson is Jack Nicholson's son. Oh, that's right. I, I And I know I referenced the other um, version, film versions of Postman Always Rings Twice, but of course his father... Oh, you also referenced the new Justin Long vampire movie, House of Darkness, but you called it some... House of Shadows. House of Shadows, but it's not House of Shadows, it's House of Darkness, that, which the review is posted, but it won't drop until... Uh, Wednesday. That mistake is in Barbarian. It's in the f- Barbarian. Oh, which that review hasn't gone up either. So this is a future apology to a mistake. Because <laughs> that review's not up yet. That's what you're referencing. Where I said it wrong, right? Yes. So, oh, or did I say it wrong in Out of the Blue too? No, it was Barbarian. Okay. My apologies. But speaking of that, we have two reviews coming for Justin Long Films, Barbarian and House of Darkness, which are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes. Because <laughs> one you loved... <laughs> And, how, how, and the other you hated. Neil, <laughs> and I hated too. Neil Labute, my God, man, what's happening? Oh, I, yeah, we can't, I guess we shouldn't be talking about it. But anyway, films released we didn't cover, something called Alienoid. I asked you if you wanted to cover that, um, a science fiction film about an alienoid. And it sounds like a very complicated uh, plot structure, hopping timelines. Uh, <laughs> That somebody asked if we were going to review, but uh, yeah, we didn't make time for it. I'm forgetting the name. Oh, uh, Choi Dong Hoon was the director. Um, where are we? My battery's about to die on my laptop. Uh, breaking. Oh, uh, I had hoped we had made time for this, but we just didn't. I saw this uh, out of Sundance when it was called 892, uh, starring John Boyega and Nicole Bahari, uh, directed by Avi Damaris Corbin. Uh, it's being released this week. Uh, now be retitled Breaking based on a true story. Next, Me Time. Uh, John Hamburg, who... <laughs> Me Time is a terrible title for a film. It's a Netflix release. Uh, especially considering John Hamburg's other film that I'm familiar with is called Why Him? If you, if you remember that with James Franco. No. And Brian Cranston. We saw that on the Fox lot a couple of years ago. Anyway, uh, the new Mark Wahlberg, Kevin Hart movie and Regina Hall. Uh, didn't make time for that. Next, Last Journey of Paul W.R. W.R. I had had, this is a 2020 release, and if I had known who was in it ahead of time, I might have made a point to try to see it, but I didn't. But it's a 2020 French film directed by Romain 
queer role, uh, but it's starring Jean Renault and uh, a, a personal friend, Paul Hemi. Oh, your Costa Rica friend? <laughs> my Costa Rica friend. Uh, you might want to pull up the email I sent you in case my battery dies. Uh, it's my little checklist. Okay. Lastly on the list, Rogue One. Uh, the, Star, the Star Wars movie that's being re-released. Oh. Okay, movies we watch for fun. So you got to see a screening of Jaws 3D. Uh, yes, and uh, that was Jaws had never been shown. Not Jaws three three D with Dennis Quaid, but the oh actual, yeah, the, the the original Jaws in three D from nineteen seventy. Where did you see that? Uh, the Regal L A Live downtown. And how was the experience? Uh, it looked great. You know, I haven't watched that. I probably it's been probably a decade since I watched watched the first Jaws. We uh, watched it together. Yeah, but back that when, was a decade ago in Minneapolis. Yeah, because. Oh. Uh, I think at that time you hadn't seen it. Was that was that right? I'm sure I'd seen parts of it, maybe. Um, I don't remember. Yes, uh, but you know, it's a funny thing with age—the things that you notice more uh, as you get older. Uh, I, I would invite anybody that sees Spielberg's *The Fablemans* this fall, which is about his uh, childhood, uh, to go back and revisit some of his works because I could not, I could not not see this dynamic between Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary as the parents uh, in Jaws and and the things going on, especially, I think there are some really subtle things going on with uh, Lorraine Gary as this this housewife that's been uprooted from her original community and really has no one to speak with. Like the first time she meets Richard Dreyfuss in that, if you just are casually watching, it's like, God, she seems hysterical, but it's, it's, this woman that has no um, kind of uh, social outlet whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> mm. Next, you continued watching that series, The Kingdom? Yes. Oh, God, my second day in Venice is going to be long. Because uh, mo- most of the competition films are two and three hours long, and then there's this five-hour Lar- Lars von Trier event. Uh, God, you know, I don't think I'd ever seen this, the second season of The Kingdom from 1997. It is real silly. Uh, oh. you know, over the top and not bad but just uh, trying to be provocative I sent you that screenshot of Udo Kier because you asked if that was oh, real oh like with a bloated abdomen <laughs> well he's like a monster because he's he's born uh, he, he's his, like a, has, has a ghost dad uh, shout out to Bill Cosby I guess and uh, he the ending of the first season is his Udo Kier's head coming out of this woman's vagina, but then he's got this like mangled, childlike creature body that grows exponentially into what you saw. Uh, yes. Next, the stolen children. Oh, and I've. Side note: I've seen like twenty screenings of film Venice sidebar items, so I haven't had a lot of time to do some research that I needed to catch up on uh, some filmmakers' works, but uh, I'd never seen a Gianni Emilio film uh, who's got has a new film in competition. He's kind of a, a very notable Italian filmmaker uh, who's worked with quite a few like actors that I like. Uh, so I watched an early uh, success for him, 1992's The Stolen Children, uh, which is about this uh, police basically escorting this young brother and sister um, to a, a children's home. Uh, the, they found the sister who was 13 had been being prostituted for two years by her mother and kind of the behaviors and the, how news has spread about this girl infect their journey. Uh, but yeah. uh, next, 
So I watched something called Eating Out All You Can Eat. So there's this series called Eating Out. Um, yes, I'm familiar with the series. That are like five, I think five installments. So Eating Out is number three. Or I'm sorry, All You Can Eat is number three. And that's from 2009, Nine. I think. Mm-hmm. And boy, so it's a lot more fun than I recall. <laughs> like it's like whoever wrote it is pretty funny i remember finding drew drogi funny drew drogi is in the next one. Oh, okay but um like uh drama camp but yeah it's it's not pc a lot of the language is you know feels dated but consider for what it is like all those gay movies where it's just hunky guys without their shirts on and lots of butts and penises uh it's actually pretty funny Mm-hmm. Then I watched, someone recommended we review Shark Side of the Moon. Oh my God. So I watched it. That shit was terrible. <laughs> but it's terrible because, so the production value is higher than you would think. It actually looks pretty good. Like, because it's like, it's basically like hybrid shark humans who live on the moon, but they're trying to get back to Earth. And a, like, like a, a NASA ship crash lands on the moon and these shark mutants are trying to get back down to earth and they're somewhat foiled but then there's like a twist at the end anyway it, it's silly like a lot of effort went into that movie like it looks pretty decent like it's better quality than like a sharknado movie what about the Raquan? <laughs> well it's very different nothing about shark side of the moon is creepy at all because there are really no sharks in the water. Like, they're all, like, walking. But the leader God. shark, she's kind of, like, this sexier woman. And she looks like maybe she's, like, a... She's the type of shark that has, like, a narrow head. So she kind of ha- Her proportions are very sexy. And then she's speaking, like, accented English. So it's kind of fun watching her. I don't know why what you're saying just reminded me of Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. But it did. <laughs> so... uh yeah, watch that. And then lastly, I watched Michael Jackson's This Is It. Kenny Ortega. Where it, it features a lot of Kenny Ortega. Well, he directed Trying it. real hard to seem... Uh, <laughs> you could tell he knew the camera was on him. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the microphone was hot. Uh, just, I, you know, it's not that I forgot how talented Michael Jackson is, but it's kind of amazing watching him. Like, he really was so super talented. Mm-hmm. And even as frail as he was... His moves were all there, and the voice was very strong, but he definitely seems affected. Yes. Like, I mean, imagine being, like, the most famous person in the world for a long time, and then being hated and reviled, and, like, just, like, the ups and downs he went through, and then combine that with, like, the changes to his appearance, and then him doing this, like elaborate show Mm -hmm. that's supposed to be like his curtain call and then that got because remember the original dates there were only like there there weren't that many and then all of a sudden it exploded and there were going to be like numerous dates like all the pressure for this person and all the work that went into it and in the documentary film we don't really see all of the work that went into it but it's very obvious that like because whenever we see him on stage, it's clear that he's rehearsed already. Mm-hmm. Because he knows all the choreography and he's doing it as well as the dancers are. We never really see the choreography being learned. We never see his process. We just see his process on stage. 
and it's very clear he understands the stage and he has a very clear idea of what he wants to look like and sound like. So it's like, it's just so sad to think that he was a person who was very good at his job and he just couldn't do his job because mm -hmm. of outside factors. And whether or not he was a pedophile, you know, he wasn't charged of it, I don't know. But, you know, aside from that, just, you know, the people who loved him and even the people who didn't love him, who just scrutinized him, really made it difficult for him to just do a job that he was actually fantastic at. Mm -hmm. So, because even a lot of his music towards the end was influenced by a lot of the negative aspects of his life and career. Oh, Scream, yeah. But, you know, tabloid junk. I mean, there are a lot of songs that are the money and it's just like, oh, it's too bad that he couldn't have had a more sort of like normal life because I think his music would have reflected that. We would have got more thrillers and less, you know... Less, history <laughs> unless i'm tired of rumors starting right yeah <laughs> all right projects of interest something called the front room yes the eggers brothers who are the brothers of robert eggers uh they apparently are getting on board with a24 and developing a film starring brandy uh, brandy from, norwood sister of ray j oh don't do her like that goddaughter of whitney no uh called the front room uh, a horror film I'm excited for that. Yeah, that's mainly be, because of Brandy. That should be interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, and like a, a like a notable black woman leading a horror film. I mean, Octavia Spencer and Ma is uh, pretty damn good. I mean, there aren't that many examples. There aren't. So this is exciting. That's exciting, and uh, maybe she'll feel a little better now that since Beyonce didn't mention her in the Vogue. Remix. Break my soul remix. <laughs> she didn't mention Mariah Carey either. No. Or Patty Labelle. Yeah, I'm kind or of Shaka Khan. I'm kind of shocked. Yeah, Shaka and Patty are kind of. You big. know who she did mention? Janet. Janet. Yeah, no. <laughs> and uh, Helen Folacha. So y'all can stay mad. Uh, Shade's, Helen... Shade's birth name. Helen Folashade Adu. Because I was like, wait, who's this? Because and... it's three names. It's Helen, mm -hmm. then it's Folashade, Fola and then it's yeah. Adu. Yeah. But the way she says it, Helen Folashade Adu, I'm like, who the hell is that? You had to tell me who it was. Because I'm like, how? who is this woman? And you you leave out Patti LaBelle. Well, and then the opening of uh, that little sequence, she says Queen Mother, Madonna, and everyone assumes she's saying Aaliyah. Yeah, but she's not. Because then she says Aaliyah again in the end, but she's not saying Queen Mother, Aaliyah. She's saying Queen Mother, Madonna, Aaliyah. Mm -hmm. So let Beyonce call out who she wants to call out. I know, but I think it's, what tickles me is she leaves Betty Davis in there. She probably... Who knows? I mean, but this is the fun part of, like, let this person, you know, name the people who have an impact on her. Like, y'all yes. yeah. are assuming that, like, yeah, it's just funny to me that people think that, like, just because that's your icon, Beyonce is her own icon. Mm -hmm. She doesn't necessarily, like, Mariah Carey may not be. For her. Yeah. And that's fine. Uh, well, just like, you know, Madonna's original Vogue, again, she's, she's dipping into... Uh, studio era Hollywood but you know there were a couple black people she could have no she could Madonna could have mentioned Dorothy Dandridge or Sidney Poitier but uh she didn't and true so but again just like I'll apply to her like that I did to Beyonce like it's who 
people who, if you ask me my favorite singers, I'm not going to include a lot of people people like. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, 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 if you only give me 15 seconds to name them, you know, I'll probably name Janet three times. I agree. As a There'll po- be some Fantasia in there. As a, yeah, no, as, as, a, <laughs> as a positive side, you know, we've come to a point where there, there are too many to encapsulate in, in one song. Uh, who name five female musical artists who you really like? Uh, I, you know, uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Oh, God. I, I would. I'd have to. Oh, right off the top of your head. I, I'm thinking Janet, Fantasia, Patti LaBelle, Mary J. Blige. Uh, yeah. Uh, Madonna, Donna Summer. Uh, oh, Madonna. I would add Madonna. Uh, Dinah Ross, uh, Megan Stallion, and. Uh, uh, Name a female rapper you like. Got little Kim comes to mind first, but she's little not, Kim she's came not, to my mind she's, first. But she's not my favorite female. But rapper. she's not my yeah. You like an Eve song a lot. Oh yes, <laughs> Eve. She's so lazy in that music video. Like she's not gonna do shit either. But that's after she married that rich white man. So she's like, I'm not gonna do much but stand here. You know, she's like, I'm gonna go shoot this music video today, and I'm just gonna sit in my, Belgium, yeah. and I'm just gonna stand here. I'm just gonna walk down these these streets and. The song this. is good. It's called Eve. Yeah. Yeah. From like twenty. Oh God, like 12 or 12? something. 12, yeah, yeah. So check that one out. Uh, next, something called Projects of Interest. I saw the TV glow. Oh yeah, Jane Schoenbrunn, uh, who directed a film. I think we were both pretty cool on, but like a lot of the ideas of it, that creepypasta film, um, we're all going to the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're directing a new film that has a really interesting cast lined up, including Justice Smith, who I usually like Justice Smith, I did not like Justice Smith's performance in The Voyeurs. But, uh, yeah, fascinating. I I don't know. It's Yeah, you'll have to read about it. Lastly, something called Trespassers. That is also a fascinating-sounding project. Um, Although the director's first film, Angel, starring Marion Cotillard, uh, Vanessa Filho is the director I, I hated, but she has a new film called Trespassers that's lined up Nina Haas and Vanessa Paradis and it sounds really interesting. It's about uh, this true story of these two women, Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malherb. They were surrealist artists who worked under male pseudonyms and kind of presented themselves in male drag as Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore. They were stepsisters and lovers, and they launched a, a resistance against the Nazis on the island of Jersey mm. during World War II. Uh, but there are so many strange elements, including the the lovely ladies, I especially love Nina Haas, uh, that I can't wait to see that. All right. So the secret film today was Nick's selection. It's called Mishima, A Life in Four Parts. Uh, Is that what it's called? A Life in Four Chapters. A Life in Four Chapters. It's a 1985 film directed by Paul Schrader. Yes. This was your selection... This would have been your, for the Grease selection, but Olivia died and you hadn't seen Grease, so... So, um, and then you wanted me to watch this because Paul Schrader... Paul Schrader is a f- one of my favorites, and uh, he's about to... I'm about to see him in uh, direct Sigourney Weaver in Master Gardener. Master Gardener. So, did you think I would find this movie enjoyable? Like, why did you want me to watch I it? I wanted to... This is uh, a soundtrack I listen to all the time, the the score while I'm writing. The, I think it's a perfect score I by Philip Glass. I, I love it. I love the, the production design um, by Aiko Ishioka. And I find... I had just read my first Mishima. I've seen this film when it first was released on Criterion, but... Uh, 
several years ago, but I'd never read uh, any novels by Mishima. And as you know, I just read The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea. Uh, and that, in conjunction with the new Schrader premiere, I wanted to share this with you. I agree. The score is glorious and the visuals are striking. I just think it's funny that for a podcast, like the those aren't really things we could talk about that well. <laughs> so um, I don't have any notes for this movie because I, I just... My, so I'll just say my overall thought. I think it's a really interesting way to approach telling, you know, like a historical figure story. So Mishima is a Japanese writer. Mm-hmm. I know that. Yeah. What, what, what else about him is notable? Oh, well, that, the film is set on the last day of his life in 1970 when he very infamously committed uh, seppuku. <laughs> so the reason I brought, posed that question is because I didn't know anything about Mishima Mm -hmm. except what is told to us in the title credits and then the the movie itself and I left the movie not really knowing I read about him a little during and after the movie so I I have some extra knowledge but from the movie itself it felt like you a person would need to go into it having some interest in the subject to really get more from it but the way the story is told is uh, four chapters relate are it's broken into four chapters, but then the story is told like an actress playing Mishima, and that's in black and white. Ken Ogata. Well, it, it yeah, the, all the flashbacks are in black and white, but the present day of his death is in color. There's a lot going on. So we meet him on the last day of his life where he goes to see some political figure because he has some agenda he wants to give to like everyone. And he's thinking everyone's going to buy into it, which is basically he wants to reinstate like the, the emperor. emperor of Japan. So he's created his own army. This is like modern day for Mishima in the seven late sixties or late sixties. Yeah. And it's a symbolic army that, that, that they, uh, the powers that be just kind of allowed to happen. They're, they're allowed to go through because he's a notable person and they're allowed to go through combat training and weapons training. <laughs> yeah. It's really odd, but the film doesn't, I feel like this actual person's life was so interesting and dark and there's so many things about it that would be so um, captivating. But as it is, it's very like, oh, just this like notable guy in Japan has his own personal army and he's decided that he wants like the emperor reinstated. So he goes to a high ranking official's office and he's able to get in there because he is notable. Mm-hmm. Like the security says, general, like, yeah. yeah, like, Oh sure. Go. And you can see the general. And when he gets there with his army, they overtake him and basically say, you're going to arrange for me to speak to all of the dignitaries or whomever to present my plan. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you and then kill myself. So the general agrees. Mm-hmm. And Mishima gets out there and talks his shit. And they're like, girl, bye. We want nothing to do with this old bullshit-ass <laughs> plan. So then he goes back to the general's office and commits seppuku. But that's sort of the where, like, where the film starts. But then all the flashbacks that we get of Mishima are in black and white. But each chapter is accented with one of Mishima's... Uh, like a, reenact, a reenactment from one of his publishings that reflects kind of the overall motifs uh, of his life. So what do we know about Mishima? He seemed to be a homosexual from oh, what I saw. And he, then he's also obsessed with youth and aesthetics. And, and decay and this collapsing of sex, pleasure, beauty, and death. That's all I got from the movie. Mm-hmm. 
So the one note I did have, but my computer died, was something to the effect of like, I think that this film is very effective in its visuals and obviously the score. I think it's a very interest, an interesting way to tell a story. But uh, the way I felt about this characterization is how I feel about people in real life who are obsessed with youth and beauty. Mm -hmm. It becomes tedious because it clouds everything they say and do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I felt watching this character. Like, oh, he just... Like this army he's made of like these younger, I'm assuming, attractive men to him. And then he, a lot of the things he says in the modern day about like, oh, I'm an old man. Like let's, that, like that self-deprecating, but obviously obsessive. It's, it's uncomfortable to watch, but the film, and I think maybe it's a cultural thing, like in Japanese culture, people are very mannered and the, the, the presentation of the story, because it was in conjunction with Mishima's estate, Seems very respectful of him as a person. There, there were a lot of problems I was reading uh, before we recorded this that I, I wasn't quite aware of because I've only I've only actually seen the version that Criterion put out, which is with Ken Ogata's uh, Japanese narration. This was released in the states with Roy Scheider giving uh, English language narration. Oh, because um, of course we don't want people to wait. The man from Jaws. Yeah, we. They don't. That's Paul. Oh, wait, that's Roy mind. Scheider. Paul Schrader. Right. Scheider Schrader. Yes, I was I was thinking they were brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Paul Schrader's brother, Lawrence, did co-write this film. Okay. Uh, and also, um, there was support from Mishima Estate, but they demanded that Schrader remove the gay bar scene. Let me tell you something. A 40-year-old queen obsessed with youth and vitality and beauty, like, there is no way Mishima was not didn't have a house full of boys mm -hmm. and doing all kinds of nasty shit and like ups and like probably a lot of like self-harm as it relates to his body and food and the, the film doesn't show any of that and what's interesting is one of his works i think it's chapter two is this kyoto's house is that what it is mm -hmm. where this man uh, meets this woman and she basically says i want to buy your body like mm -hmm. i like I'll, I'll pay off all of I'll give you enough money that you can pay off all of your mother's debt mm -hmm. and in exchange I'll own your body. And then we get a scene where she's kind of mutilating him which just amounts to we see her cutting his like torso. She's like your skin's so beautiful I had to cut it. And then he says he enjoys it it feels good and then we get a scene later on where he takes off his shirt and he's covered in bruises and cuts. He's become a bodybuilder and can't go to the gym anymore because of it. So it's like you know, telling it sounds like, oh my God, this shit sounds crazy, but it really comes across very sedate and um, polite almost. I, th I think I, I get the sense that Schrader was trying to be respectful while also encompassing the reality of this uh, notable person. You know, I'm not a David Lynch fan, but I almost feel like it, it would have been like, imagine if David Lynch took this movie and remade it in his own flavor. I feel like that's kind of what I would want it to sure. be is a little more sort of like fucking psychedelic and abusive and toxic in a way that this person probably was. Yes. But then this movie is very well put together. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful. Yes. I can film. see why it's a criteri criterion selection. Uh, it premiered in Cannes in competition. Uh, was, I think it was banned in Japan, I think there were there were bomb threats anytime it tried to play there. Oh like people, you know. So I think we, you have to keep in mind that this what how this crystallized in 1985 was. It seems to date today, but I, I think was so oh, sure. far ahead of its sure, time. Sure, sure. Uh, I would recommend it. Uh, it's definitely like 
it would be something like if you have a little micro cinema in your town or a, like, like a cute uh, like landmark or so, like a cute theater on a Sunday afternoon. But even just listening to how this this version of Mishima was written and the things he's saying, you know, I go to West Hollywood and hear that any day. That well, we... I'm also recommending that because I think you have to be in the mood. And then also because of the soundtrack, I think it would be nice to sit in a theater oh, and yeah. hear it. But and then it's, it's beautiful to look at. But yes, what you just said um, that that's all I kept thinking is like, I know so many men who are just obsessed with, and that's probably really what I would just end up talking about relating to this movie is like this unhealthy association with youth and beauty, mm-hmm. especially in the gay community. Well, you know, it, it, it really prevents people from being happy. <laughs> the first, my first encounter with, uh, discovering who Mishima was, was, uh, because as an undergrad, I did my thesis on suddenly last summer, which is of course infused uh, like a pagan story infused with St. Sebastian who were, you know, Sebastian Venable named after the, the patron saint of gays who suffers from the poison arrows. And it's that painting of, uh, St. Sebastian that in, that uh, influences Mishima and kind of collapses that. There's a famous of, portrait of him as St. Sebastian, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah, I have a book of uh, that's all about musings on St. Uh, Sebastian. But uh, so I've been aware of him for a long time, but mostly as just this this famous Japanese writer who committed public seppuku, uh, which is crazy. Uh, but all of the weird things behind it are crazy as well. It's just. I find it fascinating. Uh, but but again, yes, it's a really unique way for a biopic as well. It is. And I like that it's kind of in the, the form of a tetralogy because his, his magnum opus is are the, this, uh, uh, these four books, beginning with Spring Snow, I'm forgetting the last one, but as soon as he published his last one is when he did this. Like he knew that this was, it's like this was predestined. And if you look through the themes of all of his work, somebody's killing themselves. Somebody's, somebody's with, via seppuku. Somebody's, uh, all of these things track. Uh, like he's, he's telling us from the get-go that he was going to do this. Mm. Well, you know, the, I did get a little emotional watching it just because I thought like, it, it just, like I, I was very much in my head about like, you know, it's okay to get older. It's okay to not have a six pack. It's okay to not look like the people you worship. You shouldn't be worshiping other people's looks. Like it doesn't, how you look, like I know it's a joke and it's a joke I've made before where someone says looks don't matter and I'll respond like, are you sure? Like, I mean, but they, like they don't. Someone will find you appealing the way you are and what makes people attractive is not necessarily their physical features. It's like their their energy and their personality and it's just, it's just frustrating watching a character. Well, especially somebody so talented and intelligent and, and they're so wrapped up over something so, you know, uh, pedestrian really yeah. at, at, the end, at the end of the day. But I think that also speaks to uh, the gay community and, and, and kind of the shadows that we had to crawl out of basically. <clears throat> and then... But this field, this story doesn't really address any of that relating to a sexuality. I don't, I don't think that it had the agency to do so. Sure, sure, but and also coming from a, a straight director, uh, but you know, Schrader has always been very good at including all. Like he he is a thematic director. He likes sexually repressed. He likes guilt. Uh, uh, you know, that that proliferates all of his screenplays really mm. in films. You know, because he wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, which for, I haven't seen. Oh, we need to. 
remedy that sometime. But, uh, you know, Cat People, his remake of Cat People, I absolutely love. I've seen that. You've seen American Gigolo, which you you aren't crazy about, but also for a film in 1980. I did enjoy American Gigolo. I just had issues with... Richard Gere as a prostitute, but... He, no, he could have been a prostitute. I just think, like, his casting... The way that character is crafted with the casting seemed a little strange, but I did enjoy that. No, but uh, and but, Lauren Hutton is so fun to watch. Uh, yes, but you know, and Bill Duke uh, as this homosexual. And we didn't agree on Bill Duke's uh, purpose. Yeah, but but the, even getting that far in a U.S. film uh, with these major people in 1980, uh, you know, kudos to Schrader for sure, I, I think sure. even addressing that. But uh, and actually, I had heard of that movie, like I knew that it was a thing, but I think after watching it. That is not what I thought the movie would be about. It was definitely more edgy than I thought. Mm-hmm. It, I thought it was going to be about this older woman with this younger man. Well, because we've been taught to think that everything's sanitized like that now, too. So then watching it was like, oh, shit. And I was just thinking... There's the, murder and... <laughs> think of the bookends of that, that decade, 1980 to 1990. You have Richard Gere at each end of the decade involved in a, process, a sex work film yeah. from either side of the trade and how... Uh, by 1990, Pretty Woman, how everything was just uh, sanitized. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's all I have about this movie. I think it's fascinating to see what they were able to do with Japanese culture in the 40s, 50s, and what a gay bar might look like. And We get one scene, yeah, like one little small scene of like a, what looks like a gay bar. Where he, a, much, a younger... Uh, person of interest tells him he's flabby and he <laughs> and he gets upset and runs away uh, but that person tracks him down to say they're sorry yeah yeah well again like it, it just that that's all i took away from the story really is i really had to extract something from it mm-hmm. re- re- relating to this character and his feelings about himself and, and that was it just like it, it's so sad to occupy a space where you don't like what you see in the mirror mm-hmm. and you don't like the fact that you're aging. You know, I stopped looking in the mirror a lot over the past like 10 years because I just thought like, it, like it's just so unnecessary. Like it is what it is. I would obsess about every little thing. It's like, it's not getting better. You obsessing about how you look is not going to change how you look. Like mm-hmm. you spending time beating yourself up about whatever is not going to make it magically change. So then fuck it. Just, Go out there. You know, for so long I was so self-conscious of a scar I have on the back of my head Mm -hmm. that I would, like, orient myself. Like, I would just be so weird about it. And Mm -hmm. it's like, that's not going to make the scar go away. It's not. Like, it's there. So I either, like, live day to day with it. And it sounds petty, like, oh, I'm perfect beyond this scar. No, there's a lot of shit about myself I don't like. But imagine if I just... And I'm not fully comfortable. It's not like I'm out here with my shirt off running around. And you wouldn't see me with my shirt off running around for various reasons. But there has to be a line that we draw where it's like I can't let this inhibit my joy. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just kind of crazy. It is. I agree. Yeah. At least you you didn't, uh, aren't going to commit seppuku. Well, you don't know that. Oh, God. There are so much... Oh, no. There's so many easier ways to go, sir. I'm not going to stab myself in the gut. Oh, my God. And and make a mess. (laughs) And then what if I miss, like, a vital organ and I'm just bleeding uncomfortably until someone comes and finds me? (laughs) I definitely wouldn't do that. Please. Yeah. Okay. But, but again, it it is a beautiful film, right? Yeah. Like, oh, the John Bailey cinematography, the, the, um, Seppuku within the film uh, in uh, Runaway Horses that you Yeah, see. because it's sort of crafted around like Mishima 
like directing himself mm-hmm. in the scene yeah. where he commits seppuku and i thought that was interesting yeah it looks beautiful and i found the man what's his name or, or kenogata yeah he's pretty captivating he's a, he's in a, a kanedo shindo film called his Kate. body hair has a very interesting pattern he yeah. has a patch of like chest hair that's like in a triangular shape and then he has a mound of pubic hair that's in a triangular shape but they're sort of opposing so the mm-hmm. so the the, the the pyramid points north at his pubic hair and then the chest hair points south but we get close-ups of it and it looks like it's been shaved or groomed to look like that probably yeah. so it's a very interesting because that also says that he's probably quite hairy in his torso mm-hmm. to make that shape but i thought that was pretty striking because then he's wearing the like undergarment that's like a wrap yeah it looks great uh he is in a Kanedo shindo film called ido porn which i highly recommend if you can get a copy of it as well as uh imamura's remake of the ballad of narayama from 1980 three which i also really like we need to wrap up are you reading anything i'm still uh, with venice prep i haven't had time to read much of liar mouth so i'm still making my way through that john waters novel do you have a quote for us no i don't um and then so you leave for venice on monday Mm -hmm. uh and then you arrive there late at night or early in the morning uh i land in frankfurt and then i have a long layover there and so i i Late afternoon, I land in Venice. And then are you watching movies as soon as you land? No, I have to get up the next morning and go get my press badge and start the day. Well, sounds awful, but good for you. (laughs) Oh, there's so many good films that are about to play, I feel, though. Meanwhile, I'll try to be luxuriating. New Sigourney, new Isabel. (laughs) Do you have anything else? No. Okay, bye. Thank <laughs> you.